So if you'd like to turn, please, I'm going to take two passages. We'll start with Acts and chapter 17. Okay, Acts chapter 17. And we'll find, uh, just cutting through the first verse, Paul came to Thessalonica. And according to Paul's custom, he went into the synagogue and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And taking, attacking the house of Janus, uh, Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason with some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Okay, we'll leave it there, and then turn to 1 Thessalonians. Okay, 1 Thessalonians. That's one of the later uh, epistles of Paul. One of his later epistles, if you go to uh, 1 Thessalonians. I'm just going to read the first chapter with you. This was one of the first that Paul wrote, and uh, he, he wrote to this young church that he had to leave quite quickly. At a first glance, it seems like he was only there a few weeks, perhaps probably more likely a few months. So this is a very new young church. And he writes one of the earliest letters actually written for the New Testament. Okay, so here's his letter, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brothers, beloved of God, his choice of you. For our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we have with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Father, we do thank you so much for the truths we've been singing here. We truly acknowledge. We thank you, Jesus, for your presence with us. We acknowledge our indebtedness to you. And Holy Spirit, we right now ask you, please, to rest upon us, be our teacher. Open the eyes of our heart that, Lord, we might be more like you, transformed into your image. Please help us right now, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here we see the Apostle Paul following his normal pattern. The, the word of God was, go and make disciples of all the nations. That was Jesus' closing instruction to his disciples and in obedience. What the early apostles did was go and plant 
churches. That was the instinctive way they went to go and disciple the nations. To bring the nations to God, the way you do it is to plant churches. In that context of a local church, people are made into disciples of the Lord Jesus. They don't just attend meetings, they are turned into followers of Jesus, obeying, delighting in him, receiving him into their lives. So every church plant is a context for people to be made into disciples of Jesus. And Paul's method was to go into major cities. Here he goes to Thessalonica, which was one of the major cities in Greece at that time. It was the capital of Macedonia, and even today it's the second most important city in Greece. That was the way he went, to the major city, believing that out from the major city, the region would be influenced, as often we read in the book of Acts, that that sort of thing took place. And he's arrived in this place, and the gospel he preached created a church, and the church he formed spread the gospel. That was his policy. It comes out from this epistle. It says that from you has sounded out the gospel into the whole region so that we don't have to say anything. I don't need to do any more apostolic work in your region because from you has sounded out this word right across that area because they received the gospel so well. The gospel formed the church. The church spread the gospel. You see the same in Ephesus. Paul goes to Ephesus as a major center. While he's there, guys go out from him. Churches are formed in Laodicea and other places like that. Guys go out from Paul to Colossae. And Paul writes to them later in Colossae and says, Look, I've never seen your face, but I see you as part of what we're doing together. Because Epaphras came out and planted you. So we are trying to follow that biblical pattern of planting churches out from which the gospel goes and more churches get planted. So we're not on some static deal. We are trying to follow a New Testament pattern. And I want to look at this passage both this morning and tomorrow morning. This morning I want to highlight the gospel that Paul brought and tomorrow I want to highlight the church that the gospel uh, produced. And so this morning the gospel that created the church. Paul refers to it very clearly in verse 5. Our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's what I want to look at with you this morning. The gospel came to you. The gospel has to come. We don't just wake up Christian because we're born in England. I guess hardly any people would think like that anymore anyway. But the gospel came to them. And notice he's saying it doesn't come in word only. He's got to emphasize another aspect of power. But we mustn't miss the fact that he does say the gospel does come in word. Not exclusively word, not only word, but obviously in word. The gospel is good news. It's a message. It has content. You can't just join the singing and hope that it rubs off on you and that somehow you'll feel what's happening here. You can't just be in a church and think, oh, they're nice people. If I just kind of get alongside, I don't really need to take this teaching too seriously. I just need to catch the feel of it. We will miss the point terribly. The gospel is good news. It's a message In fact, it's interesting to see how Paul describes the growth of the church, or at least Luke does in the book of Acts. He says this in Acts 6 verse 7, describing actually the growth of the church, but the way he describes it, it's like this. The word of the Lord kept on spreading. Acts 6 verse 7. The word of the Lord. He could have said the church kept growing. But what fascinated him was this, that truth was beginning to break in Light was coming into darkness. The word kept spreading. Some of you may remember Keith Green. He wrote a great song which had lines like this in it. I was lied to, but you brought the truth to me, for you are the truth. I was lied to. We live in a generation especially that is being lied to daily about what are true values, how to understand life, how to be fulfilled It's darkness, but the word of the Lord needs to spread. We see again in Acts 8 and verse 14, the apostles heard that Samaria not had just been converted, but had received the word. They'd received it. They'd taken on board the truth. Again, Acts 12, 24, the word of the Lord grew 
and multiplied. It's like it's got life in itself. The word grew and multiplied. One more, Acts 19, 26. So the word was growing and mightily prevailing. That's got a militant note to it. The word grew and prevailed. Truth was prevailing against error. And that reminds me of how we see Jesus described in sorry in Psalm 45 when it says, Gird on your sword, on your thigh, and go and fight for the cause of truth. Bringing truth is a militant thing. It's conflict. We see that the apostles, as they were preaching, were told, you must no longer preach. You are filling Jerusalem with your teaching. Stop saying those things. There's a militancy about speaking truth. There is a hostility to truth. There is a a closing of the eyes to truth. But truth is what will bring the presence and the light of God and the multiplication of churches. The apostles in Acts 6, when they saw the gospel having such success, thousands being saved, and saw the social needs of the people, some of the difficulties with the poor, they said, we must deal with this, but listen... There's no way we're going to stop preaching the word and prayer. We will give ourselves to the word and prayer. We will appoint other outstanding guys to look after this work among the poor. Because priority is the word. They kept on giving themselves to truth. It says of Jesus, he went about preaching. In fact, at one point it says, Jesus, seeing the multitude, saw they were harassed, like sheep without a shepherd. And then it says this, moved with compassion, he taught them many things. He realized they need truth. I remember some time back now, I was in uh, Spain actually, and sitting in a great big church building, and I was, I was just waiting for someone. I went into this place, I sat down, and I saw an elderly lady come in, dressed all in black, She was obviously weak and poor. She was rather bent over. And she walked up and she took some money and put it in a little box, bought a candle, lit it, stuck it in front of a statue, sat down and looked up. And I was reminded of this verse. Jesus moved with compassion, taught them many things. And as I looked at this woman, I thought, she's got many needs Obviously, many needs. But as she looked forlornly at the statue with its candle burning before it, I thought of this. The thing she needs most is truth. She needs the word. She needs to understand. She needs to know how you can know God. She needs to know how you can receive grace, mercy, forgiveness, a relationship with God as Father. She needed truth. The gospel comes as a message. It comes as truth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are destroying things by the invasion of truth. We're bringing them down. We're saying, no, no, this is the gospel. This is the good news of God. We need to beware the danger then of yielding to other wisdoms, making up a God after our own image. Remember the story in the Old Testament of when Moses went up into the mountain, he's encountering God, he's receiving revelation from God, but he's there 40 days. And down in the valley it says that the the Israelites are getting weary of waiting, and they say to Aaron, make us a God. And so he says, well, give us your gold, give us your earrings, give us uh, the gold that you have, and he throws it into a furnace, and then he shapes a God. And he shapes a God of their preference, their specification. How would you like this God? And it's almost what would you like it with a, you know, like with horns? How do you want it? How long should the horns be? Is that too long? Just chop it off down a bit. How do you prefer? Do you want it looking ferocious? What sort of, how do you want this, this ox to look? How do you want this thing to look? You tell me, I'll make it to your preference. I'll make it to your specification. The danger is this. When you make a God to people's liking. Sadly, when you've made it, so this is how you think of God? At the end of that, you have to carry that God. Meanwhile, Moses up in the mountain is meeting the real one. 
who's scaring him to death, making his face shine and telling him what he requires. And from that point on, that God will carry that whole nation. We are not to have gods after our own preference. It's not for us to say, well, I never think of God like that. And sadly, even we born-again believers can often have that attitude. Oh, I don't think of Jesus like that. My Jesus, I can't think my Jesus would ever do that. I can't think my Jesus would ever uh, say such a thing. It doesn't fit in with how I see him. Beloved, how you see him is very secondary to how he reveals himself. And for us, it's not a matter of preference. We don't say, well, actually, I don't like that bit about Jesus. Can you cut that horn down a bit? No, no, he is the authentic God. He has revealed himself. And so our gospel comes not in word only, but it is in word. And that is the sad danger sometimes. We'll come on in a moment to the power perspective when we sometimes see people who emerge with a power gift but don't take seriously truth and come unstuck. Because they're not listening to the message closely enough. They say, wow, look at the power, look at the power. What about the message? Wow, it doesn't matter about the message. Look, there's power here. But the Bible says, ah, but look at the power. No, no, we have to get the message right. Our gospel came to you not in word only, but certainly in word. And so we don't yield to other wisdoms or even just to tradition. I guess the people who made up the ancient laws of the New Forest hadn't heard of parachutists coming down. It's not going to be mentioned in those ancient laws. Parachute? What's a parachute? They don't come. Okay. We can be like that in traditions of our local churches. What do you mean such and such a thing? Well, actually... It is in the scripture. It may not be in our tradition, but it is in the scripture. J.I. Packer, famous writer, theologian, says this, People have got into the way of following private religious hunches rather than learning about God from his word. Private religious hunches. Well, I think of God like this. I read this verse recently, Psalm fifty twenty one says this, you thought I was altogether like you. God's pointing out that's not exactly accurate. We mustn't make our God a projection of our preferences, how we would like things to be. That means we have to yield ground and constantly be reshaped as we submit ourselves to truth. Truth must shape us. Truth must shape our churches This gospel is in word. And the best way we can have life and keep moving on as a fellowship and family of churches is continually bring ourselves back to, is this what it actually says? Is this what it says? Or are we going off on a tangent? That's what will give us longevity. That's what will give us future as well as history as we continually submit to truth. Notice this amazing story in... Acts 10.11, which obviously Luke thought was so important, he repeated it in two chapters. When Peter went to Cornelius' household, it was the first breakout of the gospel into a Gentile context. It says the door was opened by this happening. An angel came to Cornelius. That's pretty remarkable. I mean, you could have spent the rest of the day saying, I saw an angel. You should have seen it. I saw an angel. It was like, oh, amazing. I saw an angel. I really was thrilled. An angel came. An angel. Now listen, this is what the angel said. The angel said to Cornelius, send for Peter. He will speak words to you by which you will be saved. Isn't that amazing? I saw an angel. What happened? He told me to listen to a preacher. He will speak words to you. To me, one of the most dramatic stories, and actually beautiful stories, is in Luke 24, when Jesus had been raised from the dead, but not many knew yet. The story of the Emmaus Road, and it says that two people were walking down that Emmaus Road. Some of the artists see just two people on an empty road. I, I often think of it, no, it's probably like after a football match. And people are pouring out of the city, loads and loads. Amongst them, two people are walking. And in the crowd, someone walks alongside these two. And as you and I now know, it was Jesus. But in the story, these two don't know anything except Jesus is dead. And they thought he was the Messiah. And they thought we had followed him, but a Messiah can't 
die on a cross. A Messiah can't be rejected and abandoned. And how can he? And their, their heads are down, their hearts are sunk. But they have heard some of the women say, "The tomb's empty," and so they're kind of bewildered. And Jesus walks alongside them. And I think for myself, I'm thinking, what would you do if you were Jesus? And there's these two guys thinking, we thought he was the one. What would you do? I think if I was Jesus, I'd say, time for a resurrection appearance. Yee! It's me, folks. Wouldn't you? I'd say, hey, here I am. I'm back. It's me. Okay, don't worry. No, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus made this choice. This was what he did. He, he selected... As just a stranger to them, what's the best thing for them? Now, the best thing for them is a Bible study starting from Moses and going right through the Bible. I think I would have said, resurrection appearance. He thought, no, no, get them settled in the truth. Tell them from Moses right through. Let them understand the whole story. Let them understand this is not an isolated supernatural breakthrough. Let them understand this is the culmination of a wonderful story. This truth, line upon line, story upon story, all building up to the triumph over death. They need to understand what's happened. And so he explains to them, from the scripture, everything concerning himself, though they don't know that it's Jesus speaking. And it says later, their hearts burned. They're burning. Wow, this is wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. Their heads up again, their hearts are filled again. Wow, it's true all the time. We knew it was true, we wondered. Now we know it's true. And just as this stranger's wandering off, they say, won't you come? Hey, stay, please have some supper with us. And so Jesus stays and has supper. But that may not have happened. Jesus made a decision. What do they most need? Do they need a a supernatural manifestation or do they need the word of God? And he decided they need the word of God. And as they had supper, later he's breaking bread with them and they decide, it's the Lord. So they do get an awareness of his resurrection life. But then he disappears. But I want us to see how important it is. The gospel doesn't come in word only, but beloved, it does come in word. It's important that we are giving ourselves to truth. We love truth. We feed on truth. We let the truth do us good. Okay, it's not word only. I mean, it is word, but it is not, as Paul's now going to go on, and perhaps the main emphasis of what he's saying in this verse, it's not only word. Okay, it is word, but it's not only word word. It's power, it's Holy Spirit, and it's with full assurance. It's very possible as evangelical believers to so love the Bible that you can be so excited by it that that's enough. You know, just the Bible itself. I had the huge privilege earlier this year uh, to share platform with two of the finest Bible teachers I've ever heard. I mean, they were just breathtakingly superb. John Piper and D.A. Carson. I mean, you could just sit there And when they'd finished, you thought, oh, what a meal. What magnificent truth. What superb preaching. It was just breathtakingly wonderful. And the Bible is so wonderful. When it's expounded with insight and revelation and understanding and brilliance, you can think, oh, oh, we were really wonderful. It's possible to reach a conclusion that just having the word is enough. And that's a real danger because Paul said it didn't come in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and so on. Again, Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 2.2. My message, my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I always expect that verse to end in the word of God. But it actually says, your faith might rest not in wisdom, but in the power of God. The power of God. God coming in awesome power. God attending the word. God himself bearing witness. God turning up. God expressing his His involvement. So we're not just intellectually saying, have you heard? These are three things God wants you to know. A fourth thing God wants you to know. Some things for you to think about. There's a power encounter. When I first went out to uh, see Jackie Pullinger, Jackie To, uh, now in uh, Hong Kong, and uh, she's an amazing woman of God, and she's sitting there amongst all these drug addicts, 
I've never seen anyone preach the gospel like she does. She's just sitting on the floor, and all these guys are sitting around mostly on the floor, and she's telling them a Bible story, one of the gospel healings or parables, I can't remember now. And she sort of read it through. Then she starts asking them questions. So what do you think? Why do you think he said that? Why didn't he do this? And these guys are kind of looking through the mist of their drug background and, and they're asking her and she's beginning to draw the gospel out. Just phenomenal. And then she said to me, she said, would you pray for those guys over there? Would you pray for the spirit on them? And I said, uh, Jackie, I don't think they're converted. What do you mean pray for the spirit on them? She said, they need the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, surely, you know, they need some understanding. She said, she said, Terry, if you said to them, now listen, A, such and such and such and such and such. Now listen, B, such and such and such and such. She said, by the time you've got to C, they can't remember A. She said, they're so drugged. Their brains are so frazzled. that if you just try to bring the gospel to them in only words, they won't keep up with you. She said, they need a power encounter. They need to feel the presence of God. They need to know God is here. She said, that's how all these guys have got saved. And one of the guys I saw a little later, actually, when she came over to speak to all our leaders at Ashburnham Place, and there's this guy there in a suit and looking very smart, and she said, I've seen him go off now, suit, carrying his uh, briefcase, and he advises the judges in Hong Kong about helping drug addicts. She advises, he advises. And she said, when I first met him, he was like a pile of crumpled rubbish on the side of the road. That's what he was like. Now, he's an advisor with dignity. I mean, just looked superb. A real dignified son of God. But he encountered the power of God. It's interesting, this morning, my, my own Bible reading, I'm I started using the Murray McShane uh, Bible reading system and I I just came to the story of uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer. And for those of you who use that method, you'll see I'm one day out of date. Anyway, I'm reading Jonathan and his armor bearer and and I'm underlining a few things about I'm with you heart and soul as the, uh, uh, the, the, the carrier of the shield. Uh, said to him, I- I'm with you, heart and soul, I'm on your side. All sorts of lovely little things there. And I remembered actually that my secretary Janice gave me uh, an email as I shot out of the office yesterday to get down to be here with you. And uh, I hadn't read it. She said, oh, we want to read this, it's very exciting. And I'll read it to you because I read it after I read the story and I thought, boy, if this isn't a modern, up-to-date illustration of what we're talking about here, I don't know what is. It's from uh, our friend, some of you know, Simon Holly who is the uh, leader of the King's Arms Church in Bedford. And uh, he said that this last week, he and one or two other guys went out uh, on the streets on what they have called uh, a treasure hunt, whereby they pray together and say, Lord, are you telling us anybody you want us to go and look for? And as they're praying and looking to God, they begin to get uh, some revelation. And they said, we've had some extraordinary experiences in the past, some good, not so, some not so good. And then this time they said, we went out, it's a bit long, so bear with me, it's exciting. It said, everything seemed normal. I believe we were directed to a red post box. It's one of the things they felt God impressed on them as they were praying. It would be located near the library. I also saw blonde hair, a girl, deafness, a gold chain, and Tabo, his friend, had spine injury, basketball, yellow coat, baseball cap. So they said, right, let's go. So we walked down to the library area and saw a red post box. I didn't even know there was one in the town centre. We then saw a group of 15 teenagers. And amongst them, a teen with a yellow jacket wearing a baseball cap. I was dreading going over to this group, knowing we were certainly going to get ridiculed. But Tabo insisted it was a good idea. So we did. We approached the teen, about a 14-year-old, I guess, and said, hey, we're on a treasure hunt, and we've something matching your description. Do you have a spine injury? Are you deaf at all? 
The guy denied it and was obviously embarrassed. We told them we were Christians, and the one other guy began, and then one other guys began to make fun and said he was a pagan. Then he looked at our list and said, "I've got a spine injury. I've three vertebrae fused in my coccyx. I have to stop. I had to stop playing basketball." We convinced him to let us pray. So with everyone gathered around, we prayed, and he was totally healed. He began swearing. He did the splits. He touched his toes. He laid on the floor, stretching his back the wrong way. He's telling everyone, I just got healed, and clearly had impact on the group. We then got to pray for another girl, and she was healed. I can't remember what that was now. Seriously, it was happening so fast. Then a guy, Rob, came up to Tabo and asked him to pray with him. Tabo grabbed him by the hand, and the guy just began crying and crying. Oh, gosh, it's God, he kept saying. This guy's just blown away by the presence of God. He said to me and to the others, this is what Christianity should be like. He became our biggest advocate, drawing more and more, going, over, going around one by one, telling his story. I gave him the gospel. He wasn't quite ready to give his life to Christ. He was blown away, though didn't know what to do with himself. Then the girl came up to us with a fractured arm. I asked her why it wasn't in a cast. She said she had a sling but wasn't wearing it. It wasn't cool. It was going in, she was going in for a cast on Monday. She showed very limited movement. By this time we had a crowd of 20 or so teenagers gathered around us on the street watching us. They all seemed to know her. We prayed and she was totally healed. Full mobility, no pain. At this point, they were all swearing. Some were crying. They kept asking us how we were doing it. We kept telling them about Jesus. At this point, I shouted out, if anyone wants to get healed, come here right now. God's on the move. We were introduced immediately to a deaf blonde girl with a gold chain. Jesus, I was sure she was going to get healed, but sadly, she didn't right then. We then had a guy come up with us with three torn ligaments on his shoulder. He was totally healed. Then a girl with severe astigmatism was healed. Also her short-sightedness vastly improved. She could read signs clearly across the square without glasses, a feat she claimed was impossible before. Then a guy with arthritis in his fingers, generational, both parents had it. I prayed for him, all pain left. Then he goes up, Tabo had a queue of people, he's prophesying over them. Several met power, God powerfully for emotional healing. I mean, it goes on and on. This is an email. Hallelujah. This, this, is, this happened in Bedford this week. On the streets. Our gospel came to you, not in word only, but also in power. What's coming? A church is getting formed. Not an isolated television program. Church people on the streets, making Jesus famous, expecting his presence and power, telling them, we're in church round the corner tomorrow. Why don't you come this week to our church? Find family, find the people of God, find the word of God. God coming in power. Paul says in Romans 15, at the conclusion of his ministry, he says, I don't presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and by deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem, round about as far as Illyricum, I have fulfilled, some translations say fully preached, but the actual Greek word is fulfilled the gospel of Christ. I have fulfilled it in word and deed. Our gospel's not only in word, but in power. All around this area, I have fulfilled the gospel. I brought the good news of the outbreak of the kingdom of God. And that's what's happening on the streets of our nation. As we heard at the beginning, yeah, there's a lot of darkness on our streets. As Dave Stroud told us eloquently on the uh, overhead, there's a great darkness, but there's also a breakout happening. As we plant churches, as we say, come on then, like Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on, shall we go? Yeah, let's go. Let's go and see what God will do. That spirit of adventure. I'm so thrilled with all that happened at New Day. With I understand over 300 conversions, many healings, guys pouring out onto the streets of Derby as New Day pours forward. We're not talking about some boring church stuff. We're talking about God with us. Glorious truth, exciting 
breakthroughs of his presence. And so God always acts in power when he's on the move. Now we know some of our dear evangelical brothers would say, now now you've got the Bible, the supernatural has ended. But the Bible doesn't say that. If we take the Bible seriously, it doesn't say that. It's just tradition that has said that. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, that the perfect, when the perfect comes, these things will go. But the perfect hasn't come. It's a very foolish exegesis of that verse. The Bible's come, hallelujah, but the presence of God is with us still in power and in wonderful fulfillment. Gordon Fee says this, the message of the gospel is truth accompanied by experienced reality. God verified its truthfulness by a display of his own power through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God himself bearing witness. I was in one of our church plants in South Africa Tableview church plant was there on their second week and I thought Lord Jesus come on demonstrate this is you at work in this new area as guests were coming in to see this new phenomenon we pray for many sick at the end and one lady she came on a stick she sat she hobbled up I prayed for her and I prayed this verse God himself bearing witness I just felt that verse I prayed again and again over people God himself bearing witness I thought Lord we've given our witness will you please give your witness And she stood up after I prayed for her. She put her hand up. She said, I have had 26 operations. My body was full of pain. She said, I have got no pain in my body at all now. After 26 surgery and lots of pain, she's free. God is amongst us, dear friends. He will affirm his word. He will confirm it with signs and wonder. Natural truth yielding to supernatural revelation and the power of God. So the kingdom of God is not in word only, but also in power. What God is like our God? You're a God who works wonders, the psalmist says. You've made known your strength among your people. So the gospel came to them in word, yes. It's a message that has to be understood and continually understood. But also in power and in the Holy Spirit and full assurance not just raw power if I can put it that way the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit forbade Peter or Paul from going this way uh, stopped him going that way then the Holy Spirit said come over uh, to Macedonia the Holy Spirit was confirming the Holy Spirit was guiding directing he can be offended he can be quenched he can be grieved we're talking about the person of the Holy Spirit. Our gospel came to you in word, not only raw power, but in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. He says, you know what manner of men we proved to be among you. It was incarnated still. These men's lives could stand inspection. They weren't just platform men like I am. <laughs> he stood among, they stood among them. They worked among them. They were known. They were loved. They were valued. They were prized. There was a transparency about Paul that confirmed the truth of what he had to say. And then one last thing before we finish here. I want us to see that the power that came wasn't just power that brought success in terms of kingdom advance in that obvious way, but also it was a kingdom that advanced in pressure. He says this in verse 6, You became imitators of us, and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting? You meet the Holy Spirit in two ways in this short passage. The power of preaching is by the Holy Spirit, but the power also to endure pressure is by the Holy Spirit. It's very important for us to see that. He says you became imitators of those early believers in Judea, what happened to them? Well, once they said Jesus is the Messiah, many of them were imprisoned. The Apostle Paul himself was breathing out threatening and slaughter, snatching them from their homes, throwing them into prison. They suffered terribly. The early believers in Jerusalem, many of them were suffered. Many of them would have been cut off. Many of them were made Uh, into poverty overnight. I believe Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Okay, well, you're not my son anymore then. Get out of my house. 
And it says thousands were in poverty. I guess thousands were disinherited immediately. So there's an immediate poverty problem. But they start sharing and there's great grace upon them all. And there's great celebration, great joy in Jerusalem in spite of hardship, setback, and persecution. And this word, persecution, tribulation, in the world you will have tribulation. He says you received the message with tribulation. The Greek word, thlipsis, literally means pressure. It's the word you would use to, if you squeeze a grape. That's how that Greek word would be used. You, you press a grape. And he says, you received the word in great pressure, in the joy of the Holy Spirit. I just want to spend a little while on this. I felt God so speaking to us, actually, in the worship, when we were singing songs like, your grace is enough. Your grace is enough. Your grace is enough for me. And I felt almost I was wanting to prophesy, but there's a lot happening in the meeting, but I really feel God was saying, don't go through your pressures alone. Don't go through your heartache alone. Don't say, Lord, I'm just going to get through this when I've got through this. When, when she comes back to God, when the money comes through, when I know what I'm going to do about my exam results, when I... I'll get through this, and then I'll come back to you, Lord. I, I just need to get through this. I, Lord, you know, I just don't understand what's happened. I, I'll, I'll find you again later. And I felt what God was saying, no, no, I'm here for pressure. I'm not here for later. I'm here for pressure. I'm here for when you feel I'm being squeezed. I felt a modern word for pressure is one we use in our generation, don't we? Stress. I feel stressed out, people say. I'll come back to Jesus later. You know, it's great being in the meeting, hallelujah, I'll join in the singing, but when my head goes out of this tent, my head goes down, because how how are we going to cope with this? How are we going to get through? I don't know how we're going to get through. Well, praise God for the escapism of the meeting. I close my eyes. God, you're great, you're great. But when I go out, I don't know how we're going to cope. And I felt God is wanting to say this to us. Beloved, I'm here with you for that very thing. It's finding me in the pressure that is more wonderful than anything else. It's finding that I am for you when you don't know what to do. That makes me really precious to you. It's like I'm superfluous when all's well. And yes, you can sing your praise. Yes, you can find that I'm a help. But when all's wrong and you find me, that's when you really find me. That's when I build stuff into your life that does you good for decades into the future. You learn in pressure like you learn no other way. And Paul is saying to this church, he's celebrating them. He said, I'm so grateful that the Holy Spirit was with us when we preached and the Holy Spirit stayed with you when the pressure came. We read in Acts 17, he said, we preached the gospel, and then this says there's a backlash, and people came to Jason, can you, you experienced them, you expected them into your home, you gave hospitality, come on, it's presented to the judges, you're in trouble. Why? We accepted the gospel. They're in trouble for the gospel's sake. Sometimes you're in trouble because, well, I told them about Jesus at work. Now I get laughed at every day. I remember a boss I used to have when I used to work in London. When I told him I was a Christian, he ridiculed me every week from then on. It's hard sometimes. The guy you work for, maybe your family, you thought they'd be so pleased. You come home from college, I've become a Christian. You've become what? Now I've found Jesus. Don't get into that. But I thought you'd be pleased. I said, what's going on here? And he says, no, you received the gospel in great pressure in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now this is the miracle, dear friends, and there's no halfway house. It's not like, oh well, I guess we'll get through, hallelujah anyway. Now God wants us to find, he says he's a river to us in a besieged city. When there's pressure on, there comes this bubble of joy in the inside. Paul even says this, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. How do you do that? How do you do sorrowful but always rejoicing? You do it by the gospel. You do it by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being with us to see us through. And so it says of this early church, 
after they were persecuted terribly, the disciples celebrated that they were worthy of suffering for his sake. That's crazy. Didn't they hit you? Didn't they beat you? Yeah, they hit me. They beat me. I mean, didn't they just smash you? Yeah, they just smashed me. For Jesus' sake, I'm associated with Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. That guy's crazy. No, the Holy Spirit is welling up. And so it says they were full of joy and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't just for preaching. The Holy Spirit's for life. In fact, notice this verse, Colossians 1.11. Listen to these power words. Strengthened with all power by his glorious might. There's at least three, if you can argue four, great Greek power words in that verse. Strengthened with all power by his glorious might. You think, boy, for what? For what? For preaching the gospel? For walking out of prison? For flying? For healing the sick? No, no, no. For all steadfastness and patience joyfully giving thanks. See, the Holy Spirit difference is for steadfastness and patience joyfully giving thanks. So that when your unsaved parents or unsaved husband constantly ridiculing you, making life difficult for you, no, you don't just put up with it. You just don't moan. You don't, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. No, no. You are steadfastly patient, joyful, and giving thanks. You are a miracle. You are a shock to people's system. What is with you? How come at off the office when all our jobs are threatened and we're always on at you anyway? How come you keep on being happy? How come we never hear you complaining? That's one of the things that always stand out about believers, that they are not given to complaining and murmuring and grumbling. Philippians says this, if you don't murmur or grumble, you shine like a light. We were once having lunch as an apostolic team in a hotel up in the Midlands, and a guy who was serving us said, excuse me, gentlemen, may I say something to you? And this guy just been putting food on our table and looking after us, and we're kind of surprised. We said, oh, yeah, sure, what do you want to say? And he said, can I just tell you, gentlemen, it's such a pleasure serving you. And we thought, well, I don't think any of us have witnessed, I don't think we personally attracted him. But I guess by not murmuring or complaining, to our own ignorance, we were shining like lights. When everyone's moaning about the government, moaning about the weather, moaning about everything... If they encounter this person who keeps on joyfully giving thanks, the Holy Spirit's not just for meetings, for life. In pressure, there's an overflow. His grace is enough. Or it isn't. Or it isn't. It's just a nice song in the meeting. Or is it? Have we found the answer to life? I think we have. We found a supply of the Spirit. We found a well of life that springs up. His grace is enough. It's not Stoicism. You know, there was a Greek philosophy called Stoicism. Lately, it's called British stuff, stiff upper lip. We used to have it before last weekend about the Olympics. Oh, there we are, right down the bottom again. Oh, well, we'll press on, we'll press on. Now suddenly, whoa, we're shot up. Whoa, here we go. Now we're all bright and happy. But so often, there's just misery around. And, and beloved, if we can just, in the midst of pressure... Who knows the economic pressure that's coming? Who knows? And in the midst of it, churches that say, we're still going to give big time. We're still trusting Jesus. It's against the black backdrop that life in the spirit shows. It's not just in the preaching. Praise God, it is in the preaching. Praise God, he was with Simon and his friends out on that street. He's there to do signs and wonders. But he's there for us in our life, in our home, in the midst of... Of pressure, He wants to demonstrate his love. In the midst of pressure, there is joy. Amen? Ooh, <laughs> a little prompting helps. Eh? I remember when we were at Bible college, and I guess I must draw to a close. In the middle of Bible college, one year when I was in London, the principal announced that we were going to have a visitor. His name was Richard Wormbrandt. 
And uh, we're going back a few years. He had just been released from prison. He'd spent some 14 years, I think, in prison in Romania, several of which were in solitary confinement. And uh, Gilbert Kirby, our principal, said, we have managed to arrange to meet him and through his former Evangelical Alliance background contacts, he had arranged for him to come and speak to the student body. I always remember because uh, they said, if you want to come, there's a special meeting at lunchtime where we can hear Richard Wormbrandt's before he became very famous, wrote books and all the rest of it. And uh, he came. And I, I honestly wrestled. I went back to my room and I prayed. I thought, God, am I ready for this? Because this is going to be harrowing. He's going to tell us terrible stories of pain and loneliness. And I thought, Lord, is my shallow soul ready to receive this? And I prayed, God, help me, help me. I want to really hear this man well. I really want to get the best from this man. And I went somewhat trembling. And I remember we, we, he was a Lutheran. And, the, the, and the, in their wisdom, the uh, faculty said, we'd, pr- we'd sing Luther's great hymn. And it's a magnificent old hymn, and it's got in it, you know, let them take our this, our that, our wife, yet he will prevail. He's, you know, it's incredible. We're all standing there singing, a couple of hundred of students, and there's this dear man looking down on us, you know, as if we knew anything we'd do in pressure. And he's looking on sweetly. And then I thought, well, here he comes. He stood up, and for the next hour, he had us in hysterical laughter. It's just amazing. He said, we're just laughing and laughing and laughing. I thought, I cannot, at the end of that, I cannot believe this dear man who's just been through all this, the product, what came out at the end, is not a miserable, bitter, broken man, but a radiant, explosive, joyful guy who gets a whole room of people rocking with laughter. He told one experience, he said, when I was in solitary confinement, he said there was a time when he said, I was rejoicing in God, but he said, I'm alone there, and the door opens and they slide in the metal uh, plate with a little bit of gruel on it, and uh, he just shuffles over and gets it, and he's saying thank you to Jesus. And he said, he remembers that scripture, he says, you know, when you're suffering, he says, uh, rejoice and be glad. And he said, I suddenly remembered it also said in the Bible, and dance for joy. So I thought, I haven't danced for joy yet. So I'm in my cell, and I thought, no, I've not danced. The Bible says dance for joy. So he said, I got up, I started dancing around the cell, and he said, the thing opens at the top, the guy's looking in. What's he doing? Dancing in there. He's going, dancing. What's the matter? He's obviously lost it completely. And they don't like them going mad. So he said, there's a delay, and then he said, after a little delay, the door opens again, and they put in a proper full meal for him. Uh, and he, he, he said, he said, I suddenly remember what the verse ends with, and great will be your reward. <laughs> great will be your reward. The Holy Spirit, the word, the gospel came to you, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And also, enjoy in the midst of pressure. I see our time has gone. I can tell by the vote with the feet for those going to get their children. Let's stand to pray.